Yeah, summer is here. It's another warm one. How are you doing this Tuesday, the 8th of June, 2021? Hope you're in good form and fine fettle. Tis myself, the BBG. Welcome to the programme. It's the BBG, not the BBC. You're listening to the Richie Allen Radio Show, live from Salford in Greater Manchester. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. I've got two brilliant guests for you. We're going to talk culture wars with uh, Stuart Waiton, Dr. Stuart Waiton, Abertay University. He'll be on with me much later on in the program. Great guy is Stuart. We'll talk Ollie Robinson, cricket, Twitter stuff and and much more and taking the knee taking the knee but before that the brilliant Dr. Rima Labo MD will be with me from the Pacific coast of the USA Rima will be with me in about 25 minutes time so it's a packed old programme tweet me as usual it's BBG Richie do I have to tell the Philistines again and again and again there is no tea in Richie BBG Richie yes mad few days Neighbour accidentally ran over my broadband cable while gardening. I always say, and I always mean it, say what you mean and mean what you bloody well say. Shit happens. It really does. And you've got to improvise, adapt and overcome when it does. Got it sorted late yesterday, but too late for me to get prepped to come on, so... Here I am. Good to be back with you. Very warm weather on the way too. If you're a weather person, this coming weekend it's going to be glorious across the country. There you are. So I've informed the Joint Chiefs that I'm moving to Aircon 4. Moving to Aircon 4, tell the Joint Chiefs. That's right. It's taken me some time to get around to it, but the studio will be fully air-conditioned next week. Thanks be to God and to Sonny Jesus. I don't know if you saw this, you probably did. The Culture Secretary, about the cushiest job in the government. It's a wonderful gig, really. You get to go to things for free and quaff, and I mean quaff, champagne, or when the champagne runs out, Prosecco, or when the Prosecco runs out, Blue Nun, or Le Piatore. God be with today's Black Tower. God be with today's when your parents in Ireland in the 1980s thought they were cultured, buying Blue Nun, Liebfraumilch, and, and Le Piatore. Yeah, yeah, they did, thought they were cultured. Thought they were moving up in Ballybeg in Waterford, drinking the old Black Tower. Anyway, Culture Secretary, great gig. Oliver Dowden has shared a Songs to Get Vaccinated to playlist on Spotify as the jabs have been rolled out to people aged between 25 and 29. Yes, he has. He has. Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden, a Tory, is telling the kids... If you're 25, you're a kid to me. Telling the kids the music they should listen to as they are having the bejesus jabbed out of them. Among the songs he put on the playlist are Hit Me With Your Best Shot by Pat Benatar. Boom, boom. Queens, Don't Stop Me Now. And If You Wanna by The Vaccines. Yeah, there's a band called The Vaccines. So he went on Twitter to talk about this. He said, so many great moments in life are celebrated through music. So get ready for the jab and soundtrack your vaccine journey with this 
playlist. <laughs> he did. He did. He did. Um, yeah, he did. He did. He did. There's a playlist for the kiddos. Well, I can do a bit better. In fact, I can do a lot better than Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden. So I suggest to the kiddies aged 25 to 29, these are a couple of songs you might listen to as you are having the bejesus jabbed out of you. over or 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 you could just go with the old traditional farewell and adieu to you fair Spanish ladies any chance farewell and adieu any chance to play that Spain for we've received orders for the sail back farewell and adieu Robert Shaw there yes shall we move on shall we move on I know that's the level it doesn't get any better than that Let's have a, a wee listen to former UK Prime Minister Anthony Blair, who was on the Andrew Marr show on Sunday, which I was watching, when I should have been preparing Sunday morning melodies, but I had no internet. Anywho, Blair, his foundation is pushing hard to make life next to unbearable for those of us who don't want the injection. Let's never call it a V word again, because... Well, it isn't. Here's Blair. Now, you might think, why? What does it matter? Uh, Blair is fairly high up the pecking order and his think tank, his foundation, it's being listened to. Why do I know that? Well, the government said it. After Blair's appearance on the Andrew Marr show, you're going to hear some of it now, government spokesperson told the Telegraph newspaper that Tony Blair is getting very good, I'm paraphrasing now, at coming out with recommendations for things that have already been briefed by the government. So what you're about to hear is effectively coming in. Here's Blair. And uh, the paper we're putting out today is, is saying we should really distinguish between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. So both here at home, if we, if we do have to adjust some of the freedoms because of the rising pressure from new variants, then it's important at least to ensure that those people who are vaccinated have the maximum freedom they can. And I think that could also be done for travel as well. Is it acceptable to turn down a vaccine, do you think? Unless you've got a good medical reason, my view very clearly is no. And I think that's why it's important to give people a real incentive to get vaccinated. Because, mm. you know, if, if you are vaccinated, the evidence is absolutely clear. It reduces the risk of transmission and it reduces the risk of hospitalisation or death. So would you make them mandatory? I don't think you can make them mandatory, but I think and this is what we're suggesting today. By making it clear that, for example, if you are vaccinated, if you're double vaccinated, it should be much easier to come in and out of the country. Mm -hmm. And indeed, round the world, I think you will find that countries start to distinguish between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. Yes, that's because they're being told to by your bosses, Tony. You know, it's not that they'll come to that conclusion of their own volition. Volition, no, they'll. They're doing what they're told, just as you did when you murdered all of those Iraqis. Anything from Andrew? The trouble is, this does create, does it not, a two-tier society between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. Looking at your own paper, it says that if you haven't been vaccinated, you won't be able to go to nightclubs and theatres and big sporting events. And That's right, Blair's paper says if you haven't been vaccinated, you know, forget about going out anywhere, ever. ...and many other places, so you will be discriminated against. Yeah, but I think, you know, 
the, the word discrimination has got a very loaded meaning mm. in, the, in, the, in the English language now. But really, when it comes to risk management, it's all about discrimination. So the reason we vaccinate elderly people first is they're more at risk. Um, the reason why we, we ensure that people are vaccinated is because it then reduces the risk of transmission, not merely of you getting ill yourself, but of you passing on the disease. So I think since everybody's going to be able to get the vaccination, other than those, as I say, who for medical reasons can't, then I, I think it really is important that people get encouraged to, to, to get vaccinated. And we also make suggestions as to how we can make sure you get proper proof of vaccination. I mean, actually, the NHS X people have done a good job in the NHS app, but we need to make that mm. interoperable with other systems so that you can use this as proof of vaccination sure. throughout the world. Throughout the world. And tellingly, Tony, and a lot of people seem to have missed this, I don't know why. I saw quite a lot of conversation about this on Sunday and even yesterday. Many of you have missed it. And that is, he talks about how the consumer, just as much as the private sector, the consumer as much as the private sector will drive this according to Blair. You're not mandating this. You're facilitating it. So I think that there may well be situations in which people decide they don't want to make that distinction. But I think you're going to find in many settings People do want to know if they're going into that setting that the people around them, if they're mixing in close quarters, have been vaccinated. And I think, you know, when you look around the world at some of the best practice on this, it's very, very clear that in the end, it's not just going to be something that government does. The consumer, the, the citizen, has also got a voice in this. Mm. The consumer will drive it. The consumer will demand that when he or she attends an event or maybe goes to town, goes into the shopping mall, that everybody else around them has been vaccinated. Now, over on talk radio this morning, Julia Hartley Brewer, well, she had a real nutter, a bona fide schmuck. A former MP by the name of Dr Richard Taylor, a genuine doctor, now a member of the National Health Action Party, a doctor. Bizarre this, he wants to stay in lockdown till Christmas. Honest. Why? Well, Richard Taylor, just have a listen. I think the justification is because it is so infectious and you can have it for several days before you know you've got it. So you're moving around, you're spreading it to other people and the elderly are still very vulnerable. Even um, even after having, even we've got like virtually 99% double jabbed in, in some communities. The trouble is there are still some anti-vaxxers around, aren't there? So there are a number of people who are not getting it and whose kids are not getting it, okay. which is absolutely awful. Well, it's absolutely terrible if people aren't taking the medical advice to take it. But I'm not entirely sure why millions and millions of people should have their freedoms curtailed because some people, when offered a vaccine, choose not to take it. Not really my problem. Uh, uh, no, there's no there's no answer to that, is it? These, no, the there answer... is an answer to that. Well, why, why is it my... If someone has been given the advice, and if someone... OK, I understand if you've got communities where people are less trusting of the health service or authorities and, and, and other people have gone in and their church leaders or, or imams or whatever have gone in and they're trying to persuade people to have the vaccine, if they choose not to have it, we keep the rest of the country on ice for the rest of time because some people refuse to have the vaccine? That's not right. Well, what is the, there is an answer to that, Richard, and what is it? What is the answer to that? Uh, I, the answer to the anti-vaxxers is to make them have it. But this make, is a free make them have it. Make them have it. Make them have the vaccine. 
is the answer. He does roll back on that just a little bit. And you can't do that, can you? Okay, so well, you can do what Tony Blair wants to do. You can make life next to impossible if you haven't a double jab certificate. You can't go anywhere. You're not coming in. You know, you can't buy that. No, no, no holidays for you. No, your child cannot go to that school. Why? My child has had the jab. Yes, but you haven't. Wait for this. This is coming in. You know, your son cannot attend that university. Why? Or your daughter, you misogynistic baldy bastard. Yes, or your daughter, right? Why? She's had the jab. Now, I wouldn't want my son or daughter if I were to have sons or daughters or life and laughter and happiness and all that. I wouldn't want them to have a vaccine, but I wouldn't be able to tell them what to do. So I could have a 20-year-old son, daughter, they might say, I'm having it because I want to go to this university. I want to travel. And I would say, don't, it might kill you. But they would go ahead and do it anyway, only to find out that they wouldn't be allowed in. No, you can't come in to St Andrews University. No, no. Why? Because your daddy is a refusenik. Don't laugh. Anyway, so he rolls back a bit on the, we must make them take it. What else does he say? And you can't do that, can you? Okay, so okay, so if you're not going to force people to have them, which, by the way, we should not be forcing anyone to have medical treatment, that would be unethical. So at what point, if they're not going to take the vaccine, how long do you think the rest of us should have our lives curtailed because some people still continue to want to have their lives at risk? <laughs> oh, dear me, that's unanswerable. No, isn't no, it? no, no, Richard Taylor, it's not unanswerable. Well, OK, I think the, the lockdown should continue indefinitely until we've got rid of this wretched bug. Yes. Yeah, he, he said that the lockdown should continue indefinitely until we've gotten rid of this wretched bug. I jumped the shark a bit there, but, but he did say that and it's a bit mad, isn't it? Keep it going forever. Keep her going there, Patsy. Indefinitely, until we've got rid of this wretched bug. Yes. <laughs> yes. So there. Lockdowns. But but there's nobody... I don't care. We've still got COVID around and some unvaccinated. It's going to get very serious. I don't think we've even... We're, we're not even at the beginning of the coercion. What we're hearing from Blair and others is the unvaccinated are immoral. They're putting people's lives at risk they're dangerous, they need to be dealt with. That's what you're hearing. And you might think that's a big deal. It isn't. Not compared to what's coming. Oh yeah, believe me, and I'm not trying to peddle fear. I've never done that in my life. Wait till you see what's coming as we get through this summer and into the autumn. The lengths they will go to turn people against those of us who have decided, no, obviously not. No, obviously I don't need that nonsense, so I'm not going to have it. We said we wouldn't call it the V word, didn't we? So let's not call it the V word, indefinitely. Andrew Preston is a professor of microbiology at the University of Bath. He was on Radio 5 Live with the eternally cretinous Nicky Campbell this morning. What will it look like in the near future, this fight against COVID? Asked Nicky Campbell. Where are we going in our fight against COVID? Microbiologist Andrew Preston then. Well, again, I think back to, to last year where at the infancy of the vaccine programme, where we didn't know what we could actually produce in terms of vaccines. Again, I think the, the idea was that if we could have some you know, vaccines that knock this down to the level of something approaching flu, so yet another respiratory infection, then we would have been absolutely delighted with that. And it appears that's exactly what we have for most people 
COVID now becomes um, not a major health threat. No, Dipstick, that's how it was from the beginning. COVID hasn't been reduced to a minor health threat because people have been vaccinated. It was a minor health threat from the get-go, so much so that it was downgraded by the government. As early as, as, as late March last year, from a highly consequential infection, downgraded, because it doesn't kill many people. It doesn't send very many people to hospital. So the vaccines haven't done that. It was always the case. But perhaps more of an inconvenience. So at some point we do have to say, look, we've done absolutely all we can do. There's not much more we can do than vaccinate everybody twice with an effective vaccine. So at that point, we may have to just make that decision. Look, this is as good as it's going to get. We now have to, to make that decision. We have to be brave and say, do we want to, to continue to, to live with some restrictions or do we want them to be gone? And if that's the case, then we just have to say, right, we, we ease the restrictions. There's nothing much more we can do at the moment. Yeah, we think about boosters in the autumn, maybe second generation vaccines. But for now, we say we've done all we can. So we just have to live with the consequences. Boosters in the autumn and second generation vaccines. Consequences. Bearing in mind there will still be some people that go on and catch the infection. A very small number will end up in hospital and possibly even die. But, you know, that's, a, that's the decision we have to make as a society, I guess. Mm. Campbell is interested in boosters and second generation jabs. OK, I was going to leave it there, but second gen- just very quickly, second, because you, you, you've said it all and you've said it so well, but second generation vaccines, uh, the, the booster in the autumn, they're, they're working on these at the moment. What are they and, and how do they know what to develop? Yeah, pull your tongue out of his arse there, Nicky. You said it so well. Actually, a good question. What are these booster vaccines and, well, the second generation ones? His answer about the booster, for me, gives the whole game away. What's the booster? So, well, the boosters, I think, were going to be the same as we have now. It's just going to be a third dose, but the second... What, what was that again? So, well, the boosters, I think, were going to be the same as we have now. It's just going to be a third dose, but the second... Hang on a second. You, you, you might have stuttered. What? So, well, the boosters, I think, were going to be the same as we have now. It's just going to be a third dose, but the second... Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, we're not going to keep harping on. I mean, I might do. Maybe I'm entitled to. It's the only little gripe I'm allowed. I allow myself. Harping on about the ineptitude of modern day or latter day radio presenters. To not jump down his throat there and say, so you want everybody to be double jabbed in the late spring, early summer. Double jab now with a vaccine against a potential respiratory infection. Yes, Nicky. And then you want them to take a third jab, basically the same shit, in September. And then what you do then is you just rip the guy to shreds on the air. It's very easy, but Nicky doesn't do that. Generation vaccines will be either those which have altered S proteins that, that take into account the, the key variants that we're battling. Or indeed, I think what we'll do is we'll end up with other targets, not just the S protein, but other viral proteins from from. Uh, the SARS-CoV-2, but maybe a, a less less variable than, than the S protein. So we have more than one target that maybe gives a much more uniform protection against all of the different uh, you know strains or variants that, are, yeah. that that could possibly arise in the future. Even lunatics. There was a time when these people feared the media. I think there was anyway. I'm pretty sure there was, but not anymore. It's open season now for these lunatics. I'll just go on the air and say whatever I want. Uh, the Welsh Health Minister. Eluned Morgan, that's her name, Eluned Morgan. 
she was on the same programme, Nikki Campbell's uh, co-presented with Rachel Borden, Radio 5 Live. She said the Welsh Government is thinking about keeping nightclubs closed until young people have had two jabs. Again, again, honestly, let's keep nightclubs closed until young people have two jabs. And Campbell, the jellyfish that he is, obviously didn't bat an eyelid. You just can't believe your fucking ears sometimes. You know, we are anxious about uh, things like opening nightclubs without having young people uh, vaccinated uh, with with both doses. So, you know, we have to consider those things. And so uh, we certainly won't be having a, a big Freedom Day on the 21st of June. But of course, we are uh, anxious to give more freedoms to people, particularly in this good weather, particularly when our rates are... She's, um, she's very nice, isn't she? She's lovely how she put that. They're anxious to give more freedoms to people. Of course, we are uh, anxious to give more freedoms to people. And that's really nice of them, to be anxious to give us more freedoms. People, particularly in this good weather, particularly when our rates are so low, we have less than 10 in 100,000 cases in Wales at the moment. <laughs> yeah, and all adults are going to be offered the first COVID jab by the start of next week. And that's six weeks ahead of uh, schedule. And as you say, all, all tribute to people on the ground who've been working on that. But what's your template for life in the future. We were talking to a vaccine expert about this earlier on who said, look, we have to deal with this. We have to, you know, walk ahead <laughs> and uh, and live life. It's, you know, there are going to be new variants popping their ugly heads up all the time. We've got to find a new way of living. We can't be in this perpetual motion of locking and unlocking and locking and unlocking. How do we deal with it going ahead? I think we do need to learn to live with this virus. It's not going away. Um, I think the key for us is that we don't want to see the NHS being overwhelmed and that's going to so be... So what does living with it... Yeah, but what does living with it mean? Because we have to have normality. This is this is no way to live. No, but it's a, a damn sight better than we've had during lockdown and I think uh, we have got to balance out those freedoms. Uh, but, you know, we are anxious to give more freedoms uh, as soon as that is safe to do so. Uh, but I think we probably will see social distancing for a while yet. Uh, we have to consider... Hello. have to consider, you know, when we are uh, just asking... Locking up again? Can you see a situation where we have, when we have relative freedom and then another variant comes along and we just lock up again? Is there, another, is there an alternative to doing that? I'm, I'm hoping that the protection that the vaccine has given us will mean that we will not need to lock up again. But uh, we've got to be very clear that you know there are variants that that could come around the corner that <laughs> evade uh, the vaccine that we have but we 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 are not planning on that basis but but we do need to consider that as as a possibility oh, of course it's a possibility that some vaccine beating variant will arrive in our lives in the winter and you'll do it all again and of course they will keep doing it and doing it and doing it until everybody accepts the vaccines. I've flirted with a couple of ideas for about five five months now. You know, at times I think maybe they're telling the truth when they say they've double vaccinated more than half the adult population. That at least 60 million people have had one jab. Maybe they're telling the truth for once, maybe. Maybe people fell for the fear and maybe they embraced it. But other times you've heard me contradict myself and suggest that maybe it hasn't gone as well for them as they would have liked. And I say that because they're telling a lot of tall tales about Salford and Greater Manchester. You might be aware of this. Andy Burnham led a press conference this afternoon. They're going to begin surge testing using the military and surge vaccinating 
in Salford. Now, why would they do that? Why would they say they need to surge vaccinate? And I wonder. You might say, well, it's obvious, Richie, it's about getting very young people vaccinated or, or jabbed. We have to stop saying vaccinated. Maybe. You see, I don't know. What I do know is, and there's a great possibility, I don't know how I'm going to react when it happens, but um, down this end of Salford, where, where I'm based, any day now, military people are going to knock on our door and ask us to consent to rapid antigen testing or rapid flow testing and to reconsider our decision not to have the jab. Now, I, I know that when we say fuck off to the test and double fuck off to the vaccine, they will leave. I, I know this. It, there won't be any trouble, really. But um, it's going to be interesting. I don't have camera equipment here apart from my phone, but it's going to be interesting. Yeah, they're saying that variants, the the, the uh, northwest, basically Manchester City and the surrounding areas, Salford, of course, Bury and elsewhere, are going to need extra help. Matt Hancock said the health secretary will give military support and supervised in-school testing in the areas. And of course, again, this is indoctrination. Society is being indoctrinated into a new paradigm, accepting a new paradigm, where the military can knock on your fucking door and, and ask you, firmly ask you, because I'm sure they'll be pretty firm with people. I don't mean they'll be threatening people, but they'll be using words like your country and your neighbours and your family. You know, what sort of selfish person are you? I'm sure they'll carry on with that nonsense. The military turning up. You know, formerly the stuff of films happening now. So I don't know. Is it because they haven't got as many people vaccinated as they'd like by now? Or is it that they have and they just want to finish it as quick as they can? I don't know. Answers on a postcard, please, to your Richie Allen show. Richie Allen show towers, Salford, Greater Manchester, Lancashire, Blighty, this old shithole. M5923. I'm the BBG, by the way. Baldy Gammon, extraordinaire. Boiling in Salford, the temperature 25 degrees. Simple Minds, Dr. Ema Label, live from the Pacific Coast. Next. You turn me on. This Tuesday, the 8th of uh, June 2021. Sizzling in Salford. Can't wait to speak with um, my first guest today. I love the, the, the lady. She's been with me doing radio with me for, well, about 10 years now or thereabouts. I don't need to tell you too much about her. She is an MD, a medical doctor, an author and the medical director of the Natural Solutions Foundation. And as I said, she's been uh, bailing me out for years on radio shows here in the UK, in London, in Spain and elsewhere. Let's welcome back to the programme the very modest and sometimes very funny, it must be said, Dr. Rima Labo. How are you doing, Rima? I'm fine, thank you, Richie. How are you? Well, you've made me laugh, belly laughs, as we say here in the UK, saying because it's very early in the AM on the Pacific Coast, saying that you're glad that it's radio and not television because you've got a puppy running around, you've got a 5G emergency. It's madness in uh, Shea Rima at the moment. Yes, it sounds like exactly, it. <laughs> exactly. Um, I think maybe the best place to start is with the 5G emergency. Why, why not? It makes a change from talking about the C word and the V word. What's going on? Can I just say before you take over and talk to us about 5G, um, I've noticed increasingly 
when I'm outdoors is that my mobile phone, my cell phone, as you would say, can can pick it up. Now, it, it cannot be picked up in my house because it's a very old house. It's 100 years old with very thick bricks and very thick walls. But outside, it seems, wherever I go now, the phone tells me that it's available. Go ahead. Well, let's understand first that 5G is not a communication system. It's a military-grade weapon system, and it was developed as such. Let's also understand that the six-foot social distancing, which has zero science behind it in terms of virology, in terms of public health protection, zero science behind it, is actually a, um, a measure that we've been inculcated to accept in order to serve the needs of the 5G system. Right now, the 5G system uh, can identify an individual in a six-foot uh, circumference, that is to say, a, uh, I'm sorry, a six-foot radius. And if you have been injected with the COVID jabs, they contain titanium, which allow, and other uh, metallic particles, you know that people are being able to stick magnets on themselves uh, because of the, the jabs. Well, that is to allow the 5G identification of any individual, um, and then any individual can be targeted via the 5G system. So uh, we're talking about a weapon system that decreases uh, oxygen saturation and therefore uh, brain and um, heart health and lung health and so on. We're talking about a very, very uh, nefarious and dangerous system which is blanketing the earth in complete um, uh, um, coordination with this COVID nonsense, which is also blanketing the earth as part of the eugenics program, part of the, the uh, genocide. So it is not a communication system. It's actually slower than conventional communication systems. So the advantage in terms of ease of communicating uh, pictures of what we've just had for lunch yeah. is completely illusory. Now, a friend, so, of mine, a friend of mine would argue with you there now. I better jump in here. He would say, uh, a friend of mine is really into his technology. And he's not on board with the agendas that you and I talk about, sadly, but he's a good lad. He's a good guy. And I've asked him about it. And I've said, you know, can you download things to your phone f far quicker than previously, like films and books and stuff? And he's convinced that he can. Well, that's lovely. And there are people who are convinced that the COVID jabs and other vaccination uh, technology are actually health-inducing. They're wrong, but they're convinced. So... Um, I, I rest on the expertise of uh, pretty substantial folks. I am not myself an engineer. Yeah. I am not myself a uh, 5G expert, but I am pretty good at putting together um, a preponderance of evidence. Now, I want to also mention that I am honored to be a judge on a tribunal of conscience, the tribunal of natural and common law for public health and justice, uh, created by Alfred Lambremont Weber, W-E-B-R-E. -E. Yeah, no, Alfred. Um, he spells Weber the, the British way. <laughs> and um, 
he he has convened a tribunal of conscience to deal with the genocidal crimes that are being foisted upon us globally. And there are three main categories. And by the way, um, the indictments were uh, uh, heard and the um, the convictions were formalized on November 29th, and anyone who is interested can go to peaceinspace.org to see all the documentation. The um, convictions uh, include three sections. The first is the alleged vaccination, the entire COVID scam. Uh, and papers have been served, cease and desist orders and uh, notification of conviction have been served on Queen Elizabeth, Prince Philip before he died, Prince Charles, um, the vaccine company heads all 50 states in the United States, governors, uh, the president of the United States, the health and human services um, uh, head and uh, relevant people in Canada and in many, many countries around the world. These cease and desist orders are, in fact, enforceable, and that's quite a news story. But there are three categories. Before you go on, before you go on, just before you go on, I want to point out that we're going to go till about 25 minutes past the next hour. So I want you to use the hour as, 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 as best as you possibly can. And I want to spend as much time using, talking about your medical expertise. Now, I would I never, I would never, I, I would never be rude with you. Um, I'm going to say this though. I've been doing this job for years and years and years and years. And I understand the need, sometimes the desire to collate all of this evidence against these people, many of them criminal people. I totally understand it. And I understand the desire to do it. And you bring together some really interesting minds. But there isn't a cat in hell's chance of ever getting any of these people convicted in a court of law. I understand there's a symbolic reason for doing it. But well, I think ultimately it might be a waste symbolic. of time. Go on, prove me wrong then. It's not a waste of time and it's more than symbolic. But let me point out that there are three areas and then I'll move on. But there are three areas uh, of genocidal activity. One is the COVID um, genocidal activity. The second is 5G genocidal activity. And the third is aspartame. And all three of these yeah. are dealt with. Uh, and it, actually, it turns out, much to my surprise, that there is enforcement possibility. And, and I'll leave that. Uh, I would suggest that you have Alfred Lambermont Weber as a guest on the show, Richie, and he can talk about why this is not just a symbolic oh, listen, uh, absolutely. activity. Absolutely. However, he, would, he would be absolutely entitled uh, to write a reply, and I will extend that invitation. I know him. He's been on the programme with me before. I just want to make it clear. I don't feel the, the, the necessity to make it clear, but for my own audience, I want to make it clear, I don't think this is the right way to proceed okay. against these people and because I've never seen it work. Uh, okay. But I understand but, why people do it, you know. But I understand my it. point is that 5G has been identified quite clearly and convincingly as a genocidal technology. It it's not a technique. Yeah. It's not a communication one. Well, there is a planned 5G tower 20 feet from my house. No way. Um, I received notification on Thursday of last week by a flyer stuck in my door that construction will start on June 10th. Wow. And this is a deadly 
um, radiation source, which I will not permit. So my emergency this morning, we, we had a call set up with a law firm that would help us get an injunction, and they bailed just a few hours ago. So uh, we've been putting Ralph Fusatola, uh, who is the trustee, the other trustee of the Natural Solutions Foundation and an attorney, and I were putting together um, the initial notice to the construction company for AT&T to prevent them from doing this construction. So that was that was this morning's um, emergency. It is a genocidal technology and it is um, being deployed rapidly as if it were rational and necessary. It is neither of Well said. Those. I agree with and you 100%. Is- I agree with you. Listen, I hear from people all the time who said that they had something last year, they had some sort of respiratory infection and it was bad, but they got over it and it, it went away. I've been hearing from people who, who send me emails, Rima, and they say, Richie, I'm not normally a chesty person, meaning that they don't find themselves being breathless very often. But increasingly this last five, six months, I've heard from people saying, I, I feel like I'm not getting as much air into my lungs as, as, as I should be. I feel breathless, even though I'm fit and active and healthy. And I know you're right. I know that th- these technologies, which, which, are, which, which were, were designed in the 1960s, as, as you said earlier on, I, I know that they can have this impact on people because uh, Professor Dr. Chris Busby, uh, an absolute legend in the field of non-ionising radi- radiation and what it can do to people, he told me this on the programme when, when 5G was first um, you know, mooted. So you're absolutely right, there's no doubt. And 20, 20 feet from your house, Rima, my yes. God. You can't now, tolerate that. One of the um, one of the other judges on this tribunal of conscience, uh, and by the way, there's a very interesting article written by Counsel Ralph Fusatola on tribunals of conscience and the impact that they have. But that's a different um, a different discussion. Um, one of the other judges had a similar tower installed just outside her apartment and uh, it killed her. So she was assassinated. Uh, she was a very, very vocal foe of this technology. So it's a, it's a rather worrying um, development that we're, we're taking on. So these things distract one from the main, um, the main thrust for me, which at this point is the COVID um, deception the the uh, jabs I refuse to call them vaccines the damage that they do and uh, we might talk about the alleged information from Dr Judy Mikovits and from uh, Nobel laureate Luc Montagnier in terms of the COVID jabs if you like that's yeah. a very I think that's a very interesting discussion well can I ask you a question now this is how we might use the time you it's great to have you back on the program you are a medical expert um I, I know you've done you've done it all I know you've worked in psychiatry you've worked with children so I've got to ask you this the most pressing issue in the UK right now is that the the MHRA, the Medicines and Health Regulatory Agency, which is our version of your FDA, they have approved, just as your FDA approved, the Pfizer jab for 12 to 15-year-olds. 
It, it horrifies me. I'm not a medical expert. I don't have any training or any skills, but I can read. Uh, could you speak to the parents of those children looking at the possibility of, well, maybe we'll get it for the kids. Maybe, you know, maybe it'll be OK. They've got to go to schools. They'll be denied schools if they don't have the job. Uh, you know, maybe they won't be able to go on holidays. A lot of people who are maybe hesitant about this, they might just, you know, weigh up the benefits. And, and by benefits, I mean being able to travel and stuff like that. And they might have it anyway. They might give consent for their children. Why should they think again, Rima? Uh, they should absolutely, absolutely think again. First of all, um, this is still an experimental uh, device, and it is approved only as an experimental device. You cannot be forced to agree to participate in an experiment. Uh, you have the legal right to refuse. Uh, we make available the um uh, internationally valid advanced vaccine directive card to help people assert that right. But you cannot be forced to do anything to yourself or to your minor children that you do not want done. That is called the right of informed consent. Yeah. So regardless of what you are told by school districts, by airlines, by whomever you, you hear from, you cannot be forced to take this vaccine or forced to allow your children, or this non-vaccine, or forced to allow your children to take it. So you have the legal right to say no. Now, the question you've asked, Richie, and it's a very, very important one, is why should you say no? And the reason that you should say no is that you have been given as a parent the right, the duty, and the privilege of safeguarding the well-being of your child. And that well-being includes safeguarding their reproductive capacity should they at any point in their lives decide to become parents themselves. It includes safeguarding the immunological integrity of your children. You wouldn't ask them to drink water containing a cholera organism uh, just because somebody said it was convenient. Um, and you would safeguard their well-being by saying, no, I'm not going to put something poisonous into my child's body that could make them sick or kill them or give them a lifelong disability. You're not, you wouldn't be um, coerced into uh, allowing them to get cancer in order to go on vacation. That, of course, is a crazy decision. But in essence, despite the propaganda, minus the drumbeat of insistent lies, and I use that word advisedly, lies, minus the drumbeat of insistent propaganda lies about the safety and efficacy of this so-called vaccine. In fact, what you are doing is introducing wildly toxic and damaging material that will be permanent, that will never leave your child's body unless and until your child is a corpse which is now incinerated. It's that serious. What are those toxins? Well, first of all, there is synthetic RNA, which will enter the cell of every single, which will enter the, the body of every single cell in your child's body. They, we are now have absolute documentation that this synthetic RNA 
will spread itself through the child's body, through the, the body of the recipient of the jab, whether it's an adult or a child. And there, inside a plastic um, shield made of polyethylene glycol PEG 2000, a known immune incitant and toxin, which people who are sensitized to uh, will, because of, develop um, autoimmune diseases. And 70% of the population in the U.S. is already sensitized to polyethylene glycol, which means that they are at high, high risk for developing autoimmune disease just because of the polyethylene glycol um, uh, spherules that protect the synthetic mRNA. So the polyethylene glycol itself will lead to lifelong disabilities in terms of autoimmune diseases, allergies, and sensitivities. Do you really want to introduce that to your children? Then the synthetic mRNA will start coercing the body to produce spike proteins. And we now know, again, definitively and without any um, question from peer-reviewed, highly reputable sources that the COVID symptoms are not due to the viral material. They're due to the presence of the genetically modified, laboratory-created spike proteins, which attach to cell membranes, which penetrate the cell membranes, and which damage the mitochondria, the energy-producing system of each cell. Now, that accounts for the COVID symptoms. And what these jabs do, and what the Pfizer jab does, is hijack the body's manufacturing system and cause it to endlessly and forever create spike proteins. Those spike proteins cause the immune system to essentially go wild and it attacks anything that looks like the spike protein. Well, the spike protein has been genetically modified from the uh, ordinary coronavirus spike protein to resemble many tissues of the human body. It also contains four strands of the HIV-1 virus for which Luc Montagnier received the Nobel Prize, yeah. uh, which yeah. he shared with Duesenberg in 2008. The HIV-1 virus is not a good thing to have in your body and the protein strands, the DNA from the HIV virus is probably not a good thing either. In Australia, where they were developing their own national patriotic um, uh, vaccine, so-called vaccine uh, on the mRNA basis, um, they had to scrap the 20 billion Australian dollar project because the people who had been injected with this experimental mRNA um, jab were coming up HIV positive. Well, there's no reason to think that that won't be a common problem since the genetically modified spike protein contains four strands of the HIV-1 virus. Not only that, it also contains um, 
genetic material from the malaria parasite. Now, I didn't make this up and I didn't deduce it with a pendulum. These are peer-reviewed published studies that show the genetic sequence of this spike protein, which certainly does exist. Does the virus itself exist? Well, that's not entirely clear, believe it or not, but the spike protein certainly does exist. And how did it get there? It got there by the jabs. Now, can I can I jump in? Can I jump in there just for a yes, second? Let me let me, let me see. Program. Yeah, but let me see if I have this right. Let me see if I have this right, because you are probably. I mean, you said this to us back in in April, I think, or back in March. But I've had epidemiologists on the program, you know, like yourself, you know, established doctors, and they said to me, Richie, look, it's basically, it's as simple as this. So if we accept that, because you said you said it's not clear whether the virus ever existed or not, or, or whether it does exist, and that's fair enough. You're not making a claim either way. But let's say that SARS-CoV-2 does exist. Let's just say that it does. Some of my other guests have said to me that it is the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2 that causes us to become ill, and that these experimental mRNA jabs are effectively encouraging the body to produce the very same spike protein that causes you to become seriously ill. Now, a number of... Is that right? Forever. I I mean... Forever. They must know this. You see, I, I will... Tomorrow, I will... We will finish up later on. I will go and do my thing. You'll do your thing. I will wake up tomorrow to an avalanche of emails from skeptics who listen to this program. And they'll say, Richie, why didn't you, you know, eviscerate Dr. Rima Labo? This is nonsense. But, but I can't eviscerate you because I've had epidemiologists, people who've gone, you know, worked at UCD in Dublin, people who've worked in Germany. And they are convinced of this, that the actual spike protein from the actual virus, if it exists, it's the spike protein that makes you very sick. And their job is encouraging the body to produce the same spike protein that will make you sick and inevitably pathogenic priming, which I think means that, as you said a moment ago, your body will then start going into overdrive to try and shut down these spike proteins. And by doing that, it could start shutting down your kidneys and your your, your ovaries and your lungs and, and everything else. This Precisely. is insane. But, but I would... I would disagree with one word in what you said you said which would encourage the body no which will program and demand that the body produce these spike proteins forever now if you have a viral infection by the way children have an extremely low risk from uh the the covid um Uh, disease itself, extremely low, and they survive it um, unless they have underlying pathologies, which is a perfectly good reason never to give the child any vaccinations, let alone this this, uh, 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 mRNA jab. Um, So what we have is the body being hijacked to produce the spike protein, the part that makes you so sick in so many ways, and hijacked to attack 
anything that is similar to um, the spike protein, which is now roving around your body forever. And it is similar enough to heart tissue. It is similar enough to brain tissue. It is similar enough to uterine tissue with a syncytium. It is similar enough to many tissues, kidney tissue, to induce immune attack. That's what autoimmune disease is. It is similar enough to many parts of your body and has been genetically engineered to do that. But wait, that's not all. The, the reality is that the people who have been jabbed are transmitting something. We think the spike protein, but we don't yet know. Thank you. Thank you, by the way. Thank you for being genuine. Thank you for saying we think this might be happening, but we don't know. Because you well, know, you know full well. I deal with people on this program who don't believe any of what you are saying. That's fine. But at least they're listening. I can't be dealing with these doctors who come out and say, we know this for sure and this is for sure. Stop. You suspect it and maybe you've got very good reason to suspect it. And this is important that we talk about it. Um, so, so something is being transmitted. Right. We think yeah. it is the spike protein. It might be prions, it misfolded proteins. It might be uh, nanobots. We have... Uh, information that says that nanobots can in fact be transmissible. We know for a fact that DARPA, the uh, defense um, research organization of the United States government, has been working on developing a communicable vaccine. That is to say, person A receives the jab and communicates the, um, uh, the contagion, if you will, of the jab to persons B, C, and D. Through persons social contact. Person. Through social contact, basically. Through social contact. I didn't know this. Contact, through breath, through urine, through feces. Um, and then that is transmitted from persons B, C, and D Lunatics. to persons F, G, and H, who transmitted persons I, J, and K, and so on, making any thought of anything even vaguely approaching informed consent, totally meaningless. And DARPA has been working on this for at least a decade, and it looks very much as if they have succeeded in these jabs because something, we do not know what, is in fact being transmitted, and it is making people sick. I have a friend who has not herself been uh, a recipient of these jabs. However, her sister, her brother-in-law, her niece, and her niece's two grown daughters, with whom she socializes many times a week, have received these dastardly jabs. Well, when I am in contact with my friend, I become dreadfully ill. I can no longer physically communicate with or be in the presence of this woman because I find that my energy systems become desperately, desperately disorganized. Number and of I people cannot, have said this. I have, I have told her that as much as I love her, I can no longer physically be in her presence. This is incredible. Now, this, is, this is, I mean, this is beyond insane. And I, I'm, I, I did not know that DARPA was working on developing a vaccine that you only needed to give to a few people and then let them out into the community. And exactly. they will inadvertently. It makes sense, though, that. doesn't it? And you think this might be it. Again, I, well, you can't prove it, but you think. It. 
And I, I would make an appeal, if I may, Richie, to anyone who has laboratory capability that includes a spectrophotometer and a chromatograph, which are pretty standard pieces of equipment, to contact me. I will share my protocol so that we can determine quite simply and efficiently exactly what is being shed. Because until we know what is being transmitted from these people, and we know that it is, but until we know what it is, we cannot devise adequate countermeasures. This is very interesting because over the last few weeks, a number of different people were in touch with me after a phone-in programme, the the occasional phone-in. And Kelly rang in from London, very articulate woman, and and said, look, I'm hearing through various sources on Facebook friends who believe that their menstrual cycles have been screwed up. And they, they, the, the common denominator seemed to be they were in households or around older people who've already had the, the jab or, or two jabs. And of course, I had to be, you've got to be responsible as, as, as a journalist and say, listen, you, you know, you think that, but you, you have no proof of it. Of course, the problem is, who's going to look into that? I think we can. Yeah. The people's science is just, is even better than the system's science. Yeah. Because we have no, uh, no financial interest. We have only the interest of truth and self-preservation in finding out what's going on. We have to know. Now, uh, Jude, Dr. Judy Mikovits. Um, is reputed to have said, drink pine needle tea because pine needle tea uh, will provide an extract that includes some molecules of a drug that's been around for over 100 years called suramin. And suramin is uh, a well-established essential drug, according to the World Holocaust Organization, WHO, um, for trypanosomiasis, African sleeping sickness. And uh, it is an antidote to what is being transmitted to the spike protein. Well, there are several problems with this. Uh, First of all, Dr. Judy Mikovits, who is a uh, very, very well-established scientist and very uh, knowledgeable, Dr. Judy Mikovits says that she never said that. I have, on the other hand, seen two videos of Dr. Judy Mikovits saying precisely that. Now, we do have the te- we know that the technology exists to take a video image of anybody and alter it so that it convincingly appears to be saying anything you want it to. Um, and perhaps that has been done. Dr. Mikovits insists that she has never put out the information about pine needle um, tea and about uh, suramin. Um, and either she's telling the truth or she's not. I don't know. Um, on the other hand, pine needle tea is a pretty well-known and very safe uh, source of vitamin C, vitamin A, and other good things. And maybe suramin extract would be helpful here. We don't know. Oh, no, yeah. The second yeah. thing that I want to say is that um, without the uh, that we have so many reports of men- menstrual cycle irregularities of um, the um, uh, loss of of pregnancies uh, 
after being in contact with a vaccinated person or a jab person. Uh, we have so many reports of postmenopausal women suddenly passing huge and very, very uh, painful blood clots and beginning to menstruate again. And we know that the um, uh, the whatever is being transmitted seems to attack reproductive organs as well as other organs. And so men have testicular swelling when they are in the presence or have been in the presence of a jabbed person. There's been some reports so, of that. Now, let me let me be again be the devil's advocate. To be fair, please. it's only right I be fair, right? Look, you and I bump, I know you're a doctor and I know you deal in the things that you can prove. I know you speculate, but to your credit, you always say, I think not this is a fact. And I like that. That's why I like having you on. Is it possible that some of these reports, and I can understand this, that some of these reports might be down to a little bit of hysteria and maybe a little bit of confirmation bias? Absolutely. Absolutely. Some of every uh, mass reporting has to be put down to um, the power of suggestion and placebo and nocebo. No question about that. Some. The problem is the overwhelming number of these reports. The problem is, for instance, the overwhelming number of deaths from the the jabs. Yeah. Now, some of these deaths could have been due to something else. That's true. People die. Um, but when you have now in the EU well over 11,000 reported deaths, when you have in the United States well over six thousand deaths when you have the number of reports to the uh, vaccine adverse reporting system of deaths just just look at deaths following these jabs when you have um more deaths in this period reported to the system than since the inception of the system by four thousand percent you have to wonder whether in fact although some of these deaths might be due to something else, when you have um, a 17-year-old in perfect health dropping dead from um, a heart attack from, you know, within the office after receiving the jab, yeah, maybe one of those people could have been about to die from a heart attack just from walking from the car to the uh, um, uh, to the house. Yeah, that could happen. Yeah, but, but it's unlikely. These numbers, no, it's not possible. And when you remember that study after study in the United States has shown that our equivalent of your yellow card um, is is a system, the vaccine adverse reporting system, that it's a system that receives 1%, 1% of the adverse events associated with vaccines. Yeah, yeah, when yeah. Then you multiply 6,000 by 100 and you get 600,000. Or be generous and just multiply it by 20 and you get a lot of people and this doesn't even touch any of the um, the other reported adverse events. But let's talk for a moment. Hey, by about the way, the by the way, by the way, just to, to let to let some of our listeners know why this is so important, because people forget back in the mid 1970s, 
Dr. Rima Lebo's government, then government in the 70s, suspended the rollout of, a, I think, a swine flu vaccine back then because of only a handful of deaths. 53 people died wow. from yeah, the yeah, 1986 yeah. swine flu 86. vaccine. The direct deaths, 53 people. No one, not one person died from the swine flu because it was nonsense. nonsense yeah. But the vaccine caused 53 deaths and about 4,000 people developed neurological um, uh, paralysis called Guillain-Barre. Guillain-Barre, by the way, is the same as polio. It's an ascending transverse myelitis. Um, And so the shots gave them polio, which is kind of interesting. And so the United States suspended the program and it created the... uh, uh, special master's court to pay out damages for vaccine injuries. About 98% of the cases that apply to the special master's case, master's court, the vaccine injury court, never get heard. Uh, a very, very small percentage of the 2% that does get heard are successful, and yet the United States government has paid out well in excess of $4 billion on special court claims. Now, the number of claims that uh, are being put in at this point because of the, uh, the COVID jabs far exceeds the number that has ever been put in in all the I'm sorry the the uh, swine flu was in 76 the special vaccine program was in 86 so we're looking at um, a disastrous increase in uh, in reports and in complaints and in deaths and in miscarriages and in all the other things now when you consider that children have no meaningful risk of this disease, but they have a meaningful risk from the shots and they will contaminate their families. They will transmit something. We don't yet know what. But you're certain that they will transmit something. Now, can I ask you this? It's already nearly nine minutes past uh, the hour, nine minutes past six. sorry. No, no, it's good. Look, it, it flies by when we chat. We could spend hours chatting, you and I, and I don't say that. I mean that when I say that. Uh, Dr. Rima Lebo is our guest this afternoon. On this asymptomatic transmission, because one of their big selling points around coronavirus and around the need to vaccinate children is that people can be asymptomatic and yet they can still pass on a virus. Is there any evidence to support that? Zero. None. Zero. But I want to say something very important here. First of all, we don't know if this virus actually exists or if the only um, indicator of disease is the spike protein. And the only cause of disease is the spike protein. And if people have been contaminated with the spike protein and get the disease and then shed something from the virus, I mean, from the the jab, that will then be blamed on new variants and so on. I would point out that the EU has ordered 1.8 billion doses of this same Pfizer-BioNTech jab to be delivered between 
2023 and 2025. Now, there are only 400 million people, roughly, in the EU. So if even if nobody dies between then and now, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of people, that is to say the people who have received the jab, are very likely to be dead by then. So you might have only 200 million or 100 million people left. How many times are they planning on jabbing people with the same jab with 1.8 billion doses? What is the plan? The plan is obviously to recontaminate and recontaminate and recontaminate anyone remaining until their DNA has been changed. We haven't even spoken about the nanobots. We haven't even spoken about uh, making people part of the Internet of Things, which is the other thing that these jabs do. Yeah, and, and that's the thing that scares people away. I think, you know, those who are brave enough to listen to programs like this and turn their heads away from the BBC, when they hear microchips and nanobots, they immediately zone out and they say, that's just crap, that. It's crazy, crazy conspiracy theory. Nobody's injecting any microchips into anybody. There's no evidence. That's what they say. That's what I get it all the time. I'm sure you do, and so do I. I have a radio show weekly coming up. Uh, Actually, it's Tuesdays uh, from 6 to 8 p.m. East Coast time um, on People for People. That's peoplefor.people.ning.com. And um, uh, it's a two-hour weekly show where we deal with uh, these things, and people respond to us in the same way, Richie, and say, you're conspiratorial, insane, insane people. There is a conspiracy and it is crazy. The fact is the conspiracy is on the other side and it is crazy. And they've adopted a genocidal um, technology system, which is crazy to get rid of us, which is crazy. Yes, it is conspiratorial. It is crazy, but it is unfortunately exceedingly real. And if you start doing a patent search, for this technology, you will find that it is very real. So here's the $64 million question then. You're a woman of science and medicine. You're a woman who went to university. You put the hard yards in. You did your your, your degrees, um, more than one degree. You've, um, You've been in practice, you know, public, private practice. You've done all this stuff. You know in your heart of hearts, and I'm not trying to depress you, you know that... We're never, when I say we, I don't know anything about vaccines or, or uh, microchips or nanobots. I understand why these um, things come up, but I can't say that I know for sure that there are nanobots or microchips in these vaccines. But listen, what do I do? I invite people on the programme to, to talk about these things. So that, that, that's my job done, but I can't endorse it. Now, I know you to be incredibly intelligent. So you know, convincing people of this is next to impossible, isn't it? Well, I have given up trying to convince people. Those who want to be convinced will be uh, open to this information. Those who are close to this information will be jabbed and will die. However, what I have done is begun to ask people who are not jabbed to start organizing the world around them so that they can survive and so that they can thrive. For example, here in, I live in Tucson, Arizona, 
and a friend of mine is a uh, gourmet chef and a poet and a writer and so on. And he has a beautiful center here in Tucson where last month we had the first un-Jabberwocky cafe. It was a meeting of people who are unjabbed, and we had a gourmet dinner prepared by my friend, the chef, uh, organic, of course. And then I gave a lecture. This month coming, the next Unjabberwocky Cafe, my friend will prepare the beautiful dinner, and then we'll do uh, some readings from his writings and poetry. Lovely. I am asking, and we have created on Telegram a group called Un. Jabberwocky, asking people to reach out to other unjabbed people in their environment. For example, I need somebody to clean my house. I don't want anybody to come into my home who is jabbed. So I will reach out through Unjabberwocky locally and find people who want to talk to other people, who want to provide services for people, who want to um, create a world for the unjabbed. By the way, um, the airlines in the United States are realizing that although they have said that only the vaccinated, the jabbed, may fly, people who have been jabbed have a much higher probability of developing clots in their lungs, brains, and elsewhere at altitude. And therefore, they are considering saying that no one who is jabbed can fly because of the liability that they will have since they did not provide the vaccines or the jabs to these people and therefore will not be exempt from liability. You've got to show me oh, this. Oh, oh. You've got to show me yes. this. Yeah. I mean, if that's true, wow. If that's yes. true, even if it's only one airline, uh, how interesting. Because the flip and side so of that is, Remus, have is, go on, go on. My apologies. What we have is the opportunity to Hello. What we have is the opportunity to seize this horrible situation and turn it to the advantage of the wise, the willing, and the informed. The flip side of this is, Andy Hunter, who's a great friend of mine, he's uh, going to be a lawyer really soon. Then he won't be a great friend of mine. Uh, Andy, we don't like lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's a good guy. He's a great guy. Uh, he's been in Florida and now he's in New York City. He's just had a flyer about the fairly well-known townhouse bar in Manhattan. The townhouse, whose uh, whose who's, who's manager's name is Michael, apparently, has sent out a flyer to people. This is the gospel now. Vaccinated patrons only at the townhouse. All vaccinated patrons are welcome to come back to the townhouse piano bar of NYC. We're all in this together. Come, uh, come on, and come on back and have some fun with us. But you got to be jabbed. I mean, what the that hell? That is that is incredibly illegal. By the way, since in the United States we have something called the Americans with Disabilities Act, which prevents people who are uh, who have disabilities of one sort or another from being discriminated against, yeah. and there are medical reasons that even the the conspiratorialists acknowledge against. Uh, receiving these jabs, for instance, sensitization, prior to sensitization to uh, polyethylene glycol, etc. And so this is someone should leap onto this with legal uh, jackboots 
and drag this guy into federal court immediately. Yeah, too right. Absolutely outrageous. Now, we've got about four minutes left, so, you know, the four minutes are yours. Needless to say, we've had a lot of tweets during the last uh, 50 minutes or thereabouts. I've not had any opportunity to jump in because I wanted to let you, you know, to go. But but, but many people endorsing what you've been saying. One or two others saying they don't believe that they're going to try and put nanobots into our bodies yet. There are people listening to this programme who believe that might be a future agenda. They agree with you about transhumanism, about the Internet of Things, but they're not sure they would go as far as that just yet. Brilliant comments on... They haven't done the research just yet. Um, They need to do the research and they need to look at the official statements of the um, Health and Human Services units like the CDC, which I call the Center for Disease Creation, and the FDA, which I call the Fraud and Death Administration. Um, These organizations are already talking about the need for injected trackers. These organizations are already endorsing these um, these realities. So let's get a hold of the, a few of the vials and let's subject them to laboratory examination. There's Absolutely. no point believing or not believing something. This is not religion. This is not about the, the, uh, uh, the fate of the soul after death. This is science. There's nothing to believe or not believe here. The science either supports something or it doesn't, period. Well said. You know, if they've got nothing to fear, why not produce a vial of these mRNA vaccines and share them with people like yourself, people like Dolores Kyle, Sucharit Bhakti in Germany, people asking these questions. Amen, sister, I would say. Absolutely right. And is there any way, I mean, is there any way that my friend, Dr. Rima Lebo, could say to your local medical centre, yes, I'll have the jab, thank you. And then you go there, Grab the syringe and make a run for it. <laughs> Any we have chance? people doing that. We yeah. have people doing that, as a matter of fact. Brilliant. Um, and uh, as a licensed physician in the state of Arizona and the state of New York, um, now that physicians have recently been authorized to have the vials and uh, administer them in their offices, uh, my plan is to do just that. Fantastic. I think they'll be way ahead of you, though. They won't give you the, uh, the, 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 the jabs. Not. No, Probably they're not. not. They're, not, they're just not going to believe you when you say, listen, I'd like to help with the vaccination effort. <laughs> they're going to have a quick look online, uh, particularly at opensourcetruth.com. Opensourcetruth.com. I'll also put out a link later to the Natural right. Solutions Foundation. Do, do us a favour, over the summer, not too far from now, come back and let's get into the Internet of, of Things and all of that. You know, I love having you on, Rima. You've got, um, you've got very thick skin, which is very important important. You, you, you have a proper medical approach. You don't mind the criticism. I think you said to me before, something that David said to me many years ago, you said if, to, if, if something is true, it'll stand up to any scrutiny. And I love that. It will indeed. I'll give you the final word, 30 seconds, and then we've got to move on. For God's sakes, don't get jabbed and avoid those who have been jabbed until we know what the countermeasures are to the dastardly thing that they have been programmed to spread. And do not, do not jab your children. 
You look after that puppy there. He's quieting down a bit. And uh, enjoy the rest of your day there in Tucson, Arizona. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rima. Thank you so much for having me, Richie. Love having you on. You're always welcome here. Dr. Rima Labo, MD, scientist. And of course, um, I, I don't like mentioning it too often because uh, he passed away a couple of years ago. But Rima was married for many years to, to, to the one and only General Burt's Doublebine. Now, you might have read a book called The Men Who Stare at Goats, which was written by John Ronson. And it was based in no small part on Bert and some of the covert programmes that he was involved in when he was a general in the US military. And he went and spoke openly about those. And I had, I think I had him on the programme one time. I think that interview might still be on Podomatic.com if you look for it. And it was, it was, it was a great interview. I, I don't mean great interview because I was particularly great. I, I wasn't, but he had so many interesting things to say about the things that they were getting into, the things they do, remote viewing and all of that stuff, amazing stuff. And thanks to my pal Spiro Skouras, by the way, for finding an article on Popular Science website, the Popular Science magazine and website, an article written by Kate Bagley, Kate Bagley from June 2017. And that article, believe it or not, was um, about these new vaccines that will be transmissible. Be, be from person to person, without person two or person three needing to have them. Anyway, it's 23 minutes past the hour. Let's uh, very quickly change the subject entirely. I was tweeting about and writing about the cricketer Ollie Robinson, wasn't I? Who um, made his debut for England's test team against New Zealand and had a cracking start to his career. I think on... I think in New Zealand's first innings, I think he took four wickets for 75 runs. Anyway, somebody dug out some tweets that he'd made nine or ten years ago. You might argue the tweets are a little bit crass. He made some silly joke about uh, about Muslims, maybe. Nothing too offensive. Nothing that you couldn't just say, ah, well, you know, grow up a little bit. But um, he was made do the walk of shame and he was publicly humiliated. And then when the test was over, he was told that he would be dropped for, well, for the foreseeable future and wouldn't play any part in the second test. Uh, this week, England fans have come uh, under criticism again because they have continued to boo the England soccer players when they take the knee just before games. What's really going on? Well, my next guest, and I will put out all the links to where you can read more about him, is a brilliant guy. He's been writing about these and many other issues uh, for a long time and speaking about them as well on national television and radio here in the UK. Um, he's a professor at Abertay University in Dundee. It's always a pleasure to welcome back to the show the one and only Dr. Stuart Wait And Stuart, thanks for giving us your time. How are you? Yeah, yeah, not bad. I'm still locked down and frustrated that I have to wear a mask every time I walk into a pub. But uh, other than that... I'm fine. You're hanging in there. Um, yeah. Before we talk about some of this stuff and why it is serious, because whenever you do these, I watch you all the time when you do interviews and I read you, of course, uh, in the Herald and elsewhere. Inevitably, people come out and say that, you know, these these are gammon-esque people trying to make a mountain out of a molehill. I don't think that's the case. Before we do that, please indulge me in a little bit of footy speak, Stuart, because I don't get it anywhere. Are you actually looking forward to the tournament? Um. I haven't given it too much thought, I must admit, and I haven't watched. Uh, I've watched the highlights of the uh, friendlies. I haven't actually bothered watching the games, so I can't say 
that I've followed England as closely as I usually do, which I can't really explain why. Maybe it's because I'm playing golf too much or you know doing doing other things. That could but, be um, uh, anyway, I, I, or, I won a competition in St Andrews recently. So oh, did you? At St Andrews course. <laughs> Yeah, on the old course, yeah. Listen, if this, people say, absolutely right to drop that in. I would have dropped it in too. That is, that is quality. I, I've never played a game of golf in my life, but I do like watching it on television. And, you know, I lived in Spain for years near some of the greatest golf courses in the world. And our friends, our customers used to, oh, come on, Richie, come and play Valderrama with us tomorrow. Think a courtesan. And I'd be like, no, thanks. I'd rather have a swim. Um, right, so we'll leave the football there. I think it might very well be the fact it was dreadful this season watching it on Sky and on BT in empty stadiums. It was horrible doing that, but that's for another day. Um, I felt terribly sorry for Ollie Robinson, that ordeal that he was put through, apologising for some things that, I mean, I'm sure I said worse when I was 17, 18, and I think people around me then knew that I was just a bit of an Egypt, and it was no big deal. I feel sorry for the guy and I think it might be hard to recover. Does anybody give any serious thought, Stuart, to the impact these sort of public humiliations might have on these men? Yeah, well, it's a, it's quite an interesting one, this, because I think the Tories have done very well coming out in support of them. And the, the more they do this, they just chip away, the more they're going to end up with more working class voters um, saying, I'm going to vote Tory. Because it's things like this that most ordinary people think there's something slightly mad about it, uh, something over the top, uh, which doesn't kind of make sense to them. But then you see from the other side, the argument from the other side is about words, how harmful words are, how you know, these words that are expressed, like Monty Panesar, ex-England cricketer, came out and said, yeah, by the government defending this cricketer, they, they're essentially sending out the message that being a racist is okay. I mean, I, I think you'd have to do an awful lot to send out that message uh, uh, today. I must yeah. say, it's, I, I always find that a bit of an odd one. So you have this real difference in terms of how people think that you should relate to sort of language policing, if you like. Uh, and I still think it's a massive, massive issue that is just going to keep coming back and coming back um, because there's something profoundly intolerant about it, isn't there? You know, this yeah. you know, 28-year-old guy or whatever he is, 26-year-old, when he was 18, 19, writes some uh, offensive tweets. Um, of course, I presume someone's gone and dug them out. I mean, it's the thing that I, I often find really worrying is that I always think the people that go and dig this out are far more antisocial and Aren't degenerate they? as human beings than the people who said this the things in the first place. You know, it's this um, trying to track down people to get them sacked. You yeah, know, like that. Yeah. I've, I've, people have asked me to be sacked a, a thousand times, I'm sure, on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, and you just think, where's your basic level of humanity? <laughs> you know? That where we seem to have lost a sense of separation between your what are, are often private things you're saying, even if they're on you know public platforms, and your job, you know, the, the job you, could be gone. I, I don't know what what happened to somebody seeing that and asking him in a in a friendly, 
I don't know, constructive way. Hey, Ollie, what, what were you thinking when you wrote that about my Muslim friend is the bomb? What were you thinking? And of course, that gives the chap a chance to say, oh God, did I did I say that? I, I was probably pissed, probably telling silly jokes with my mates. I, I might have gotten that from Chubby Brown or I might have gotten it from... And yeah, I shouldn't have put that. That's common sense and nice and decent and humane. It's the way, we, the way, I, it's the way I grew up anyway, but, but not now. Michael Carberry, I do know a little bit about cricket. I'm, one, I'm a rare Irish guy that I've been, I've been following cricket since 2005, since I went to the Ashes at Old Trafford. Now, now I'm a complete nerd. I love the sport. <laughs> and Michael Carberry was a terrific batsman. And I, I thought, you know, incredibly robust. He was a great sledger, Michael. He was great at taking the knocks. Michael has come out and said that the guy or, or people who tweet that sort of stuff should never play again. And you're touching on something, Stuart, that's really important. This idea that there should be no forgiveness mm. ever. What oh. sort of thing is that to tell young boys and girls? Imagine the, the mindset for it, because children are so absorbent, aren't they? They pick up everything. How dangerous is it to be saying to them, if you screw up just this much, much just this one little bit, you're gone. You're, you're, basically, your life is over. Yeah. Where's the value I mean, in that? Well, it was an interesting thing because David Gower came out and said, you know, all, instead of doing what they've done to Ollie, they should probably use him and say, well, it would be useful for you to talk to young people about the dangers of social media. And I, I understand there's an element of which there is a danger of social media to young people, but really the danger that we're seeing here, it's not that young people need to learn, it's that adult society needs to relearn how to be tolerant and mature, yeah. you know, and put things in perspective as well. I mean, the thing about the, the Muslim and the bomb, right? I mean, I've seen Jimmy Carr tell jokes about Muslims. Well, well it's a joke. He tells jokes it's about joke. everybody. He offends everybody. Are you not allowed to tell a joke about a Muslim? You can tell a joke about a Christian. You can tell a joke about this or that, whatever. I mean, that one's probably for me. You just think, well, it's a, it's a kind of joke. He's trying to be a funny guy telling a Muslim joke. Well, you know, Jimmy Carr's done that. Should he be banned from comedy? Yeah, just, yeah. It becomes, it becomes very strange. So it, it worries me that in the lesson, which I actually think that the Tories have done themselves a real favour here because they appear to be a bit more worldly, you know, a bit more worldly, a bit more mature in an old-fashioned sense, where you just say, look, it was a, it was a, some stupid comments said when he was a teenager, you know, come on. <laughs> and we've, we've said that on social media, and I said it, and I'm, I'm not as eloquent a writer as you, but, but I said it without any kind of hint of... Um, nastiness like you know the kid was 18 and they come back and and they are serious many of these people they really mean it oh at 18 you're entitled to do this and do that you know sodom he's an effing racist and to hell with him how would how have we are we being induced then to become like that is that ultimately where identity politics is meant to go that we subdivide ourselves into a billion groups that just cannot stand the other 999 million groups. Is that how it's going to be? That's how, that's how it's developing. I mean, again, part of the problem is that the people who run our institutions um, and develop the laws have essentially put this into law. So the, the hate crime law in Scotland, which England will you know, quite possibly be getting their own version of this, it sort of sets in stone these different protected characteristics. 
So you define all women or black people as vulnerable groups who need extra protection under the law. And you, you literally institutionally separate people in society. So instead of law being universal, which is its great, great thing, you know, it doesn't matter if you're poor, you're rich, yeah, you're black, yeah. you're white, you're whatever, the law will treat you all equally. That's been smashed to pieces, you know, with the new laws and the new equality acts and you know, the way that you have to look at people in, as different categories. It's a bit, the thing that I find really frustrating as well is that We've looked at this in in America for quite a long time, and sort of you know looked and thought, well, I'm glad we're not like America, where you get affirmative action everywhere, and you seem to just have this sort of pork barrel politics of different uh, cultural or ethnic groups lobbying, and now that seems to be what we're trying to help uh, create in our institutions, the way human resources practices work and everything else. So yeah, I think that that is definitely where we are at the minute. But I also think there's a bit of a kickback against that. I think Brexit was a bit of a kickback against that. I think Trump was a bit of a kickback against it. Um, people voting, working class people voting Tory, I think is a bit of a kickback against it. The boon at the England match, um, where they're taking the knee. Uh, you know, people people are not prepared to just sit back and um, accept it, despite the odds being stacked against them. I think it, it's uh, brilliant, that, isn't it? We've got the criminologist and sociologist Stuart Waiton on the program. Uh, I put out links to where you can read Stuart. He's a, an author as well as an academic, and we've talked about these issues before. I'll tell this very quick little story that I don't know if it's relevant, but I'll tell it anyway. It's um. I had an encounter in Spain some years ago with uh, Paul McGrath, who he, I, th- I think he's Ireland's greatest ever player, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, people say Liam Brady, Chippy, they say Roy Keane, obviously, uh, Johnny Giles, but but there was nobody like Paul McGrath. And as a died-in-the-wool United fan when I was a kid, we loved him, you know, what a, what a player. Mm-hmm. And there's a story about Paul, and he was in Spain, and it was during... The, the, just after he be- began to recover. So he was in he was in great form and, and he was doing well with the sobriety and that. So we're having a chat and he was there with Paul Gascoigne and a few others. There was a big, big um, golf do on and they came into my fiancé's bar and then we met him afterwards. And I said, it's a, I'd love to ask you a question if you don't mind me asking. And he said, yeah, because I was doing radio as well, of course, at this stage and talking about these subjects. So Stuart, I said to him, is it true is that after one of your birthdays, not long before you left Man United uh, to go to, to Aston Villa, is it true that you went to Bernard Manning's comedy club? And he said, yeah, I know what you're going to ask me. And I said, is it true that the, the, the lads played a joke on you and they got Bernard to single you out? And what did he say? <laughs> and he said, yeah, he said he did. He said exactly what was in the papers. He said, uh, we've got Paul McGrath here. He's a fantastic footballer, a uh, great guy, uh, Irish and black you got fecked then, didn't you? But he didn't say fecked. And, and uh, so Paul took his bow. And as he sat down, Bernard said, I bet you've got a small willy uh, as well. So I said, um, did you go along with that, Paul, because you felt you had to be, you know, being one of the lads? And he stopped me in my tracks. He said, no, uh, mate. He said, it was very, very funny. Uh, of course, I didn't take offence at it. And he said afterwards, he said... Uh, you know, we went backstage and Bernard was saying, what a player you are, son. And and Bernard wanted to know about him being black in Ireland at a time when there were very few black people in Ireland. Yeah. So he said, no, there was nothing negative about that experience at all. And of course, that was in the 1980s. 
that couldn't happen now, could it? I mean, people would be burned to the ground now, metaphorically, if anything yeah. like that was to happen. Yeah, well, it's one of the things as a Marxist philosopher, if you can call him that, called yeah. uh, Slovak Zizek, and he makes the observation that it's, it's where you actually want to get to. You want to get to the situation where you can take the mick out of everybody because they know that, there's no harm in it. No, it's a joke. It's a joke. You know that's what, and it, it's like what you like with your mates. You know, you can take the mick out your mates far more than you can out of people who are not your mates because they're the mates. They trust you, and that's really where you eventually want to get. You don't want to get to a situation where nobody, you know, takes the mick out of each other, tells yeah. jokes. You want to get to a situation where everyone can tell jokes because you know it doesn't mean anything. You know, because we, you know, that society is not this hotbed, sexist, racist, transphobic sort of mob you know people are not like that it's a joke you know and that's i think that's the refreshing thing about good comedy i think when you can tell that it is a joke and whatever it is and however offensive you take it as a joke and yeah we, we can all laugh at each at each other and ourselves at the same time and cultural that's, value that's Stuart. again i love having you on mate i do because you always touch on things that you know maybe we don't think about often enough we when i say we i don't mean white people but i mean i suppose people from these islands, one of our shared cultural things is that we do like people who don't take themselves too seriously and who mm. can laugh at themselves mm. uh, with their mates or, you, you know, and that's a, that's a cultural value. I know that it's different around the world. I remember I was in Germany a few years back and there was a load of Irish guys um, at a pub called Gunther Murphy's, which is well known in Munich. And one of the Irish guys had lost his job because he was phoning sex lines. So can you imagine the abuse he was getting, Stuart, right? But the Germans at the table didn't find this funny at all. Like, like they were saying, and they were funny. They, they, had, they had good sense of humour, these people. It was a different type of sense of humour. They were saying things like, this man, he's, he's at his lowest ebb. This is an embarrassment. This is a disgrace. Why are you laughing? And we're like, because this is who we are. He's still our mate. We don't think he's a pervert. We don't think he's sick because he was phoning sex lines. We think he's a fool for getting caught and we're taking the piss out of him. But they didn't find it funny. But that's that's kind of unique to these islands, isn't it? I, well, possibly, no. possibly. I don't, I, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't travelled far and wide yeah. enough. I, I, I like to think that people take the mick out of each other wherever wherever you go to some extent. They might yeah. just do it in different ways. But yeah, I do think that's that's one of the real tragedies about this um, obsession with language and police and language, microaggression, and all the rest of it is it just stops us being able to communicate. You know, and even if we communicate not very well, it'd be a much better situation if someone just said, oh, I don't really like that. Yeah. You know, rather than, <laughs> I mean, at the minute, yeah. what you do is you go and tell. And you go and tell. You, know, you go and tell teachers. So you get universities, I imagine lots of universities, I've, I've certainly seen a few, have websites that encourage students to tell on other students and tell on lecturers. Jesus. You know, and that's, and so instead of, yeah, you know, being a grown-up and confronting a person and expecting to try and you know, question, challenge, email, whatever, come and tell. You know, tell tell on the person, tell on the person, and that's now an encouraged thing. And it's, I mean, it's just profoundly antisocial and undermines our capacity just to to learn to deal with each other. You've, um, I can't go into this, I don't think, but you've rubbed up a little bit against this, haven't you? I have, yes. And I can't go into it. 
<laughs> we'll leave it alone then. No, uh, the, the, the listeners will know what I mean anyway. As a lecturer, Stuart has rubbed up, rubbed up against one or two students who haven't liked something that he might have said or written in a newspaper article and tried to cause some bother or miser, as they say in Salford. It's a word I learned in Salford, miser. Anyway, we'll leave that there. I wanted to ask you, because I know you're a busy man. I wanted to ask you, it was nice this morning to listen to the Radio 5 Live Your Call. It was nice that they facilitated reasonable argument about the taking an E thing. There was a lovely Geordie rang in, believe it or not. Lovely Geordie rang in and he said, uh, listen, he said, the reason why I would boo or he said the reason why some people are booing is because they're just fed up of being lectured to about stuff. It's not that they disagree with the central premise that, you know, people of colour do matter. He said, but we're just sick of it. Come here for a a beer, a game of football and a good time and at least they facilitated that argument. What have you made of all of this and Garrett Southgate getting involved and please don't boo when they take the knee? What do you think, Stuart? Yeah, well, again, I think it's really, really interesting because I, I was reasonably convinced that the part of the reason that they introduced this initially was because fans weren't there and they didn't have to think about what the fan reaction would be. And I was fairly sure that there would be a bit of fan reaction. I didn't know how much um, or whether people would be prepared to say anything, but I did think there would be some kind of reaction. And so you get this interesting split between the kind of football lovies who you know are all about the fans and you know the, on talk sport and these other places. Uh, and then when the fans actually turn up, and have a voice themselves. It's it's like a sort of Victorian maid who's just seen someone with a short skirt or something. Yeah. It's kind of, <laughs> kind of moral hysteria. Um, and I mean, I, I, well, I was listening to the talk sport discussion on it, and it was and it was poor <clears throat> to a large extent because there's a kind of presumption of the goodness. And the, the way they kind of managed the discussion was they said that this was all about the England players choosing to do this and that it's they can't understand why you wouldn't get behind the players, etc. as if that was all there is to it. You know, it was almost like, you know, what, which planet are you from? If you think this is just about England players choosing, what did every yeah. single other player in every single league choose to do this every single game you know it's it's kind of like it's a really infantile way of trying to suggest it but at least Simon Jordan who's the ex-Crystal Palace owner said that he wouldn't cheer he didn't he didn't agree with the booing but he said he wouldn't applaud uh, for the similar reasons the ones you've just said that he thinks that there's a patronizing dimension to this where I mean, why football fans, you know? I mean, what, what is it? What is it about football fans? Have they all got two heads or something? You know, they, they all wear Nazi armbands. You know, you don't... I don't go into the cinema and get a lecture about racism. I go to a football match, I'll get one. You know, And, the, and it's not even a, a lecture. It's a kind of mantra. Say no to racism. Say no to racism. Say no to racism. It's the sort of thing that if this... If this was done in any other context, people would think they were living in some kind of dystopian Orwellian future, you know, where there's a sort of loud hailer, you know, support big brother, support big brother, but it's all right if you can say, you know, say no to racism, say no to, you have have subliminal messages flashing on the screen about racism, you know, flashes across, there's a little badge comes up, 
it's like you know, it, there's no other area of life or history that we would have thought that this is reasonable. No. Whereas now this is, yeah, you know, to question it, you're seen as some kind of extremist. I'm like, well, wait a minute, this is not normal behaviour. You know, in a, a free liberal society, you're not meant to be having these kind of like endless, you know, finger pointing, shouting. I mean, you're basically being shouted at every time you go to a football match. So I think, you know, I, I think it's a, a breath of fresh air that fans are prepared to turn up and say, actually, yeah, you d- don't treat me like a piece of dirt. Yeah. You know, and why, why should I get on my knee or support other people getting on their knees in a sort of subservient, shameful gesture? You know, so good on them. Good on them. And what about... Um... What about, it's gone right out of my head now, I had a point to make on, not, not so much on this, but um, the, the aspect of it, yeah, this is what I was going to say, the aspect of this which is a bit interesting. I heard quite a bit of this last year when, in the aftermath of the, the killing of George Floyd, I heard a lot of people say that, first of all, silence is violence, which isn't new. They'd been saying that, some people had been saying that for many years, different causes. But I heard it increasingly, it became more and more common that it's not good enough to not be racist. You've got to basically prove that you're not racist. You've got to show somehow that you're not racist. That's dangerous, that, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's so funny. I mean, how how many sort of um, hoops do you have to jump through? Because you've got that silence is violence. So, okay. So if you then come out and say, okay, I'm, I'm against racism, and say, well, actually, you need to be con- aware of your unconscious bias, right? So you, you can't even say you're against racism now without someone saying, no, that's not right, because you have unconscious bias, right? And you need to have unconscious bias training, yeah. which, of course, I've done at work, and I'm sure, like, millions of other people have at work, where, you know, your unconscious gets trained by your employer. What was right? it like, Stuart? What was the unconscious bias training like? Um, Well, I usually flick through them as fast as possible because I think it's so degenerate and patronising. I'm not prepared to actually take any notice of it, but I probably should, and I should probably take notes so that I could write a a paper on these things because they're so... so, I mean, it's just remarkable. Again, you know, when was that acceptable, that your employer could say, I'm going to train your unconscious? Madness. It's madness. (laughs) You know? And that's just all right. You know, that's all right. You can train my unconscious employer. That's fine. Part of my work contract, I have to be, I have my unconscious trained by you. Yeah. You've also got terms like unwitting racism, which developed out of the uh, McPherson report, which is the new, that was how they categorized it. It wasn't that you were consciously racist anymore. You were unwittingly racist. Unwittingly. That's, what, that's what structural racism meant. It was that you were unwitting. So you didn't know that you were being racist. You've also got this category of whiteness now, so it's the whole idea of white privilege. So actually, you know, how how do you win? Right? You can't you say, win. You can't. You, you're saying nothing. That's not enough. You say I'm against racism. They say, well, you're not because yeah. you you know, you've got unconscious. <laughs> and then they say anyway, you've got white privilege. So what you what you're talking about? <laughs> it's gaslighting, isn't it? So what, in the extreme. What do you do with that? And it's made me. I don't. I generally don't despise people unless they're. War criminals, you, you know, and, and do unspeakable things. But generally, people you meet in the media, I don't despise them. I despair, but I never despise. But I, I do despise the guy at Birmingham, Kehinde Andrews. 
I love this guy and I, and I loathe him in equal measures. I've invited him to debate a thousand times these ridiculous ideas he has about unconscious bias. I think this began, I remember being 20 or 21 and doing a part-time job, Stuart, and we were told that we had to give a morning next week to sexual harassment training. And I remember thinking, this is crazy. When I look back, I think it began there. We sat down while some bloke came in and told us the blindingly obvious is that you can't bring a top shelf magazine into the canteen while you're having your tea and flip through it. Uh, you shouldn't be asking your female colleagues out on a date. If you get turned down or knocked back, leave them alone. And I remember coming out of this thinking, did we just spend four hours being told not to read nudie magazines in the canteen? Whoever did. I'm a sexually repressed Irishman, Stuart. A Catholic. Nobody does that. And were we really told that you shouldn't really invite your female colleague out for a drink? And if you do, and she says no, you should leave her alone. I mean, my parents, most people I know, they met in their places of work. But I think it began back around then, around the around the kind of mid-1990s, this sort of madness. Yeah, you know? well, it's funny because I, I was sent for... for different reasons nothing to do with racism or anything but i was sent on a race awareness course um and my friend was as well and we were both marxists right? we were both like sort of revolutionary communists at the time yeah so it must have been sort of early 90s i suspect somewhere around there early early mid 90s still in, in, in a, a little lefties um but we were you know we, we were good on racism and we never had the sort of pc nonsense anti-racism of now it was almost much more about politicians and the police and stuff like that that needs to be looked at and we anyway we went on this training course and it, this it was a kind of older guy doing the course and i would probably describe him as a kind of soft racist right like this, this is the guy doing the training right <laughs> By which I mean, he's like, he's not a racist particularly, but he's a kind of, he was a bit like my dad, where he's like, you know, oh, you know, black people are a bit different to us and we're a bit yeah. different from them, right? But that was now right, you see, because it was the argument had become not that we should say that everyone's equal, but we should say everyone's different, but we should treat people well regardless, right? So his kind of soft racism was incorporated into the new anti-racism. Because right? you just you say, well, you know, black people are different, right? Because you can't say we're all equal now. Because if you say we're all equal, you're ignoring difference. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so in this bizarre situation where we're trying to explain to the tutor that actually this is quite a problem, what because we should really be talking about equality. Yeah, that we're all equal, not that we're all different. And could he see it? You have a society. Could he see? Could he? Could he? Could he see the point that you guys no, are making to him? He no, couldn't, he see, couldn't it. see the point. No. He, well, he said, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that was it. You know, it's like that's on. the way it works when it's someone who's probably been drafted into this job because his job's gone and he's had to do something and then he comes and there you go, you go and t train them how to be not racist. I mean, that's I mean that's the level that we're talking yeah, about yeah, about this yeah, stuff yeah. anyway. I mean, it's ludicrous. You know, I've, I've got books and books on, on race and racism, anti-racism on my shelves, right? And yet I still get called along to you know, hear someone who's got a pack from human resources to tell me, what being a racist or an anti-racist is. I mean, that's that's another element of it that, that's so ludicrous. How, that's just a farce, isn't it's it? A farce. <laughs> it's just, let it's a farce. Let me ask. Let me let me ask you this before we um, run out of time. And, and again, thanks for your time. It's been too long since you were on. I love having you on, and I do mean every word of that. How how long if this is unchecked and if the media doesn't do its job and annihilate this nonsense? How long before people, let's say? 
white people say, and I don't like to, to frame it in those types of terms because the, the people who don't like people like me, they, they, you know, they, they believe that, you know, that, that I'm a pusher of great replacement theories and stuff like that, even though I'm not. I've invited people on to talk about that stuff and I've argued the toss with them about it. I'm not at all. I'm open-minded. To, I, I listen to anybody. But how long before eventually people start being asked to step aside? Imagine it now in a few years, Stuart. Imagine yeah. being asked to step aside to right historical wrongs. You know, is that a possibility before we run out of time? Oh, good, good question. Um, I, I think we're in a very interesting moment in terms of these things. I think the emergence of GB News, I don't know if you've followed this, the Andrew, yeah, yeah. Andrew Neil channel, which is coming up. I think I'm, I'm very interested to see if that has an impact because suddenly you're going to have a news channel that is self-consciously not politically correct. Right, which is again should still be a serious news channel. Yeah, which and that might be very interesting to see how many viewers they get and what impact that has, and if that suddenly has a shift on, you know, the comfort levels that institutions have. The problem at the minute is that you have this sort of blob that runs society at the minute who sing from the same kind of degraded, diversity obsessed hymn sheet. Um, and how you impact on that, I, I, I think it's all got to do with public pressure. The more there is a public visible sign, whether that's booing, taking the knee, or whether it's voting Tory in sort of working class constituencies because of the PC stuff, or people watching different news channels or reactions, I think you're just going to have public reaction after public reaction is just going to keep coming through. And I'm hoping that that will have a, a level of impact on people who run institutions because they suddenly realise that they can't just push through the kind of framework of operation. That, you know, they stopped, they dropped the unconscious bias stuff a little bit. They stopped doing some of these things. So that's my hope. Brilliant, Stuart. Lovely to have you back on the programme. You're welcome on any time, mate. Thanks a lot. Uh, you've okay. been listening to Stuart Waiting. Stuart's an academic. He's a journalist and author. Waiting is spelled W-A-I-T-O-N. I will put links there, but if, 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 if this is the first time you've heard from him, you should pay attention to him. He's a, an important voice on these subjects and more. Enjoy the footy anyway, mate, and the cricket as it goes, and, uh, uh, and come back on over the summer when you have a bit of time, Stuart. Will do. Thanks, mate. Lovely to speak to you again. Uh, Stuart Waiton on Tuesday's Richie Allen Radio Show. The time is exactly four minutes or four and a half minutes to six o'clock. I wonder, is that, the, you know, will that be the case, I wonder, in the near future? If this went unchecked, I mean, Stuart made a good argument as to why this might not go unchecked as people become more and more fed up of it. They publicly demonstrate against it, peacefully, hopefully, as the football fans were doing there. Uh, Charlotte, who's in Burnley, says, Richie, GB News employees have turned many viewers off before it's even gone on air due to their incessant vaccine propaganda. Thanks for that, Charlotte. You're not the first person to say that to me that their producers and employees seem to be very much on board with the vaccine agenda. No surprise there, I have to say, but uh, yeah, thanks for that. Uh, Stuart is obviously talking from a culture wars point of view. Uh, he hopes that it'll be a bit different there. Uh, hi to Scottish John, uh, my pal Scottish John in Austin in Texas. John will be watching the Scots play in their first tournament for uh, for quite a while, and they've got a good side to have Scotland this uh, particular tournament. The Irish are not in it, of course. Uh, Sutty says, Richie, nobody gives a shite about 
the England team giving Nazi salute in Germany. That's right. What year was that? What year did the England team play in Nazi Germany? And the players gave the salute, the Heil Hitler, before the before the kickoff. Remind me. I should know this, uh, but uh, I don't know it off the top of my head. I did different times. And of course, but back then, you see, footballers wouldn't have had any conscience. Footballers back then would have just would have done what they were told to do. And they would have been told, listen, you line up now and you will turn towards the Fuhrer and you will salute him. And they just would have done it. Uh, no doubt about that. Uh, hi to Alan in Liverpool. Uh, Faisal as well. A lot of tweets to Matt in Western Massachusetts. How you doing, Matt? Uh, interesting show today. Thanks again to Dr. Rima Labo for her companionship, for her company on the programme, and to Stuart Waiton, PhD, Abertay University in Dundee, author, journalist, and uh, he's had a little bit of bother, which he can't get into. Nothing too serious uh, for him, hopefully. But one or two, not many, I think one or two people who have um, been through Stuart's lectures. Not because of anything he said to them, but because they saw things that he might have said in interviews on Sky News or somewhere else that they found to be offensive and have uh, daubed him in effectively. Uh, academic institutions need to be really strong when it comes to this stuff. Thanks, Stuart, again. Thanks, thanks Dr. Rima Labo. I'm out of here. Back with you tomorrow, Wednesday at five o'clock UK time. Until then, look after yourselves and one another. This live radio programme, as it has been, as it is, will be podcasted right soon on the usual podcast channels. Closing out with Danita Tikaram. Danita Tikaram. Good boy.